I'm Bon Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. Our guest today is Dan Barber. He is the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns in New York. He's the author of The Third Plate. Dan's a fierce advocate for sustainable, ethical farming and cooking. His opinions on food and agricultural policy have appeared in many publications like the New York Times. He also co-founded Row 7 Seed Company. It brings together chefs and plant breeders to develop new varieties of vegetables and grains. Dan has received multiple James Beard awards, including Best Chef and Outstanding Chef. President Barack Obama appointed Dan to serve on the President's Council on Physical Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition. Dan blurs the line between the dining experience and the educational by bringing the principles of good farming directly to the table. We recorded this conversation at the 10th annual Aspen Ideas Health Festival. It's a gathering of some of the most creative people I have ever met. I want to give a shout out to the Aspen Ideas team who allowed us to use their podcasting studio so Dan Barber and I could have this great conversation. This show is actually number 128 for us. We started this podcast way back in September of 2020. It's been a labor of love. It's given me such great joy. We have listeners all over the world. Thank you for being part of our journey. I'm going through some major life changes right now, so we're going to take a pause on this podcast for the summer but I hope to continue the show in some form or another in the future. It's so inspiring when our listeners reach out to us and tell us why they like the show, what they learn from the guests. So please continue to do that. I'm still on social, on Twitter, and on Instagram. You could reach out to me there. I would love to hear from you. Now here's my conversation with Chef Dan Barber. Dan, welcome to Ideas Health Festival. I know you just got off a plane, and I really, really appreciate you making some time. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So we were talking before that my dream podcast would be a podcast with doctors and chefs on it. And I, I love it. I think a lot about food, but I took one nutrition class in medical school, and I'm ill prepared to tell my patients about how to eat healthier. So I want to start off with the first question is. Why is our current food system so bad for our health? Well, you just tipped it off right there. I mean, it's it's the idea that intervention is the cure mm-hmm. to health. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it. Because you don't teach prevention in medical school, or you teach it very lightly. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's what agriculture is. Agriculture in our country is intervention. It's not prevention. Mm-hmm. So you have a a system based on growing in weak environments. Weak environments are environments where there's not a lot of diversity, like monocultures. Mm-hmm. That's a weak environment, exquisitely what, vulnerable. What, to like what does that mean, monoculture? For uh, those, mono, for a monoculture, a monoculture is one variety of one thing grown in a very large expanse. Mm-hmm. And it makes you just exquisitely vulnerable to almost everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's one dictate of nature, it's that it doesn't want to be the same Hmm. you know just look out the window i mean how many shades of green and and grasses and and trees and bushes and the rest that's what nature wants to be you Mm. know and so when you get into agriculture you're manipulating that to a certain extent but the trick 
for good agriculture and good health mm. is to mimic what we're looking at outside our window. Mm. Uh, that's extreme diversity. Okay. So you can have both diversity, which is an ecologically resilient ecosystem or environment, mm. and produced a lot of food, a mm. lot of food. I mean, look, regions have been doing that, civilizations have been doing that for 10,000 years. You know, it's just recently, yeah. like 100 years, you know, really. That is the American experiment mm. with turning that equation on its head. And the equation is, we're going to do everything we can do to prevent a pest or a fungal disease mm. or a, you know, a root crop illness by doing several things, most of them based on intense diversity. Mm. And what we've done is said, no, we're going to use technology to grow one variety of one thing mm -hmm. over a huge landmass. And our answer to problems when they present themselves, because they present themselves pretty quickly, yeah. is a chemical intervention, whether it's a pesticide or fungicide mm -hmm. or herbicide. And I would suggest to you, now I'm extending that analogy between the two white coats, that that is very much how we look at the medical profession. Mm. Uh, because intervention, we have gotten, you have gotten very good at. Mm. And it's very persuasive. Yeah. Because prevention is very hard to pin mm. down. And uh, the food as medicine movement has been gaining in popularity. But I heard you say something interesting. You said food as vaccine. Can you unpack that? Like, what, what do you mean well, by that, that? I think that came from, I remember saying that, I think it was during COVID because I had done an interview with someone from the Rockefeller Foundation, mm -hmm. a scientist, and he just bombed on, a, on something I still remember years, years later. Mm -hmm. He said that we were in the middle of COVID, you mm -hmm. know, it's very, very, yeah. very frightening time. And he said, COVID is really about diabetes. Mm. It's about diabetes and obesity more than anything. Hmm. And he gave me this statistic that was the bomb. He said, if you adjusted COVID for type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. in the 1970s, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes in America in the 1970s, COVID would have been a really bad flu season. That's it. Mm -hmm. That When you count the statistics. Yep. And that just, you know, that blows your mind. So that's what I said. Like food is a vaccine because mm -hmm. it's a prevention. It's a preventative. You said before that food was the food system was regional. What does that mean? Well, the food system used to be regional. Used to be regional. Yeah, yep. yeah. Well, we used to eat everything that was grown very close to us, and just in the last fifty years, we've turned that upside down by producing most of our food, upwards mm -hmm. of eighty-five percent of our food, from. Vegetables from California, Texas, Arizona, uh -huh. Mexico, and beyond. And almost all of our grains west of you know, Ohio and Iowa. And almost all of our milk and meat west of where we're sitting, Colorado. Hmm. So that's a, a game changer. And what that has enabled is a very efficient food system in terms of cheap food mm -hmm. and in terms of lots of food. Yeah. But... It's happened that way because we've allowed it to happen and we've mm. enabled it to happen. It didn't just all of a sudden become a cross-country food system mm -hmm. uh, for us in New York. You know, it happened because politicians and agribusiness and the powers that be built a system that made that very efficient. Mm. Well, is that so bad if, I, you know, I'm in Philadelphia in January if I want a strawberry? Like, what's the big deal with that? I'm not going to... 
you know, wag my finger at you, man. I don't even know you. <laughs> what I'm going to tell you, though, is that that strawberry is not going to taste very good. They yeah. taste dumbed down because they're grown in basically sand. They're grown very quickly. They're pumped up with water and they taste of nothing. Mm. Now, get a strawberry that grew near Pennsylvania, near, near Philadelphia. Uh -huh. Some of the best farmland in the country is mm -hmm. west of Philadelphia. And you'll have yourself a delicious strawberry, but you can only have that in May and June, mm. and then again a little bit in September and October, and that's it, mm. and that's it. And that's a wonderful way to enjoy a yeah. strawberry, Yeah, uh, you know? Part of our problem is that we've come to believe that we can have a strawberry 365 days a year, and that, that doesn't work. So if we were to go back to a regional food system, would there be enough food for us? Well, people ask me that all the time, and my answer is, Unfortunately, as a, I don't mean to confuse this, but maybe I'll do it to con do it instructively. How about that? Confuse it instructively. We have the possibility of recommissioning our agriculture in a regional way mm. if we eat different. Mm. So we cannot have a strawberry 365 days a year yeah. and eat locally. Mm. We cannot have a protein-centric plate of food, mm. a steak or a chicken breast or a salmon filet, you name it, mm -hmm. with a small little smattering of vegetables and, and white rice uh -huh. for dinner. We mm -hmm. just can't do that twice a day, seven days a week. Yeah. So our understanding of what's for dinner needs to change. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm positive about that possibility is that the hulking piece of protein or the strawberry that, that logs a lot of long distance miles frequent flyer miles is just not that good. Mm. It's just not that good. Mm. And I feel like there's a generation, this millennial generation and the Gen Zers that are waking up to good flavor. Yeah. Man, these guys are dialed in. It's crazy. Oh, way more than me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Way more than my generation. They're very attuned to it and they demand a story and they demand something that doesn't carry with it, you know, a carbon sequestration trunk yeah. load as they have dinner. Those are things that I find very uh, thrilling. Mm. And I see a movement that is not only much more delicious, but much more nutritious. And that's the thing, that's probably the best, you know, late inning revelation I've gotten is the understanding that nutrition and flavor are the same thing. Mm. We always forget, you know, yeah. I, when I was growing up, I was under the impression that nutrition was something you just had to pinch your nose and swallow, yeah. you know? If food was good for you, it did not taste yeah. good. I don't know, cod liver oil. I mean, what, what, you know, it's like all these associations to our parents and us that are totally backward, yeah. you know? They're totally backward. Mm. It's like deliciousness comes from, well, it comes from flavonoids. You know that. Mm. Flavonoids, flavonoids is flavor. Mm. Same thing, same thing. Yeah. It's a synthesis of those flavonoids that creates the things that we say is, oh my God, very tasty. So there's, there's something I think rooted in all of this that's hedonistic, mm. you know? And instead of coming at it from the white medical coat yeah. angle, my preference is to come at it from a celebratory, hedonistic, mm. you can have your cake and eat it too. Well, uh, you can. I'm with you on that. And, and you're literally redesigning how we eat through company <laughs> that you started, Row 7. Can you tell us about that? Well, I got to the point that the change mm. agent starts with seed. Mm. And in some ways, seed is the blueprint for the whole system that we've been talking about, the whole goddamn thing. Mm. I blamed politicians. I blamed agribusiness interests. I blamed sort of everyone uh, on the way to our miserable food system and food culture. But 
none of that would have been possible without seed, without seeds conspiring. Mm. And what I mean by that is you can't grow 85% of our vegetables in three states and Mexico without a stunning efficiency with seed, mm. you know, a dumbed downness yeah. of seed. So whereas, you know, not that long ago, we were all celebrating strawberries in every region that mm. were different, very different. Mm. Size difference, sweetness difference, acidity difference, time of year difference, obviously. And what we've done is monocultured that, but we've done it because we've gotten a seed that's enabled us to do that. Now, yeah. if you take that analogy, that's a parable for everything. That's a parable for corn mm. and soybeans, which is grown on 190 million acres of mm. our farmland that doesn't feed us. It feeds a cow yeah. and our gas tanks, you know, and that that happened because of seed technology. Mm. So I, in answer to your question, I started a seed company because I wanted to go to the source. Mm. You know, Everything we're talking about is a cultural shift. You gotta yeah. change the culture. And that's happening, but that's that takes a lifetime yeah. uh, to get back to a semblance of what we used to have even 60 years ago. But seed, you can change pretty fast mm. now. You know, We have technologies now that don't need to be put to the monoculture end game. Yeah. You, do, you don't need that, no. We can, and we do, and this is what I work on, is take some of the strawberry genetics from the past mm -hmm. that we really loved, mm. that were grown in particular places in the country, and we can marry all those genetics. We can pick and choose, actually. Mm. And we can sort of menage a trois with some really good disease resistance for organic systems mm. and some good yield. So mm. we're not talking about something that's precious and that's a $5 strawberry. We have the technology now to do that in a couple of years, mm -hmm. where if our grandparents wanted to do that, they were stabbing in the dark. And they may have been mm -hmm. able to develop new varieties of strawberries, but it would have taken them a lifetime. Yeah. And what we can do now is like speed it up film. Yeah. Because of genome has been mapped, because you, can, you have computer technology, you have transmitter genes, you can mm -hmm. look at this stuff literally and see where the genetic expressions mm -hmm. will hold in what regions. And we can improve our food system I think overnight if we start with seeds. Mm. That's why I gravitated to. Yeah. I'm also very interested in the forgotten scientists in the food chain. Mm. You know, we talk a lot about farmers. I've, I'm an evangelist for yeah. farm to table. I mean, look, I've got a restaurant in the middle of farms. So I've, yeah. I've, I've got a skin in the game. But what I've come to understand is that, I'll tell you the story that made me come to understand this and I'll tell you what I understand. 14 years ago, a breeder walked into my kitchen after dinner. I invited him for a meal. He was a squash breeder from Cornell University. Mm. And I was like very awkward in the kitchen. It was kind of loud and you know, I didn't have anything to say to him. So I just turned to one, I didn't know much about seeds or breeding at all. So I just turned to him and said, you know, if you're a squash breeder, how come you don't create a butternut squash that actually tastes good? Like why are mm. we adding maple syrup, brown sugar and yeah. the rest, right? And I don't think I've had a butternut squash without those. For good reason, yeah. because you want it to taste good for your family on uh. Thanksgiving or whatever holiday. It's purposeful. It means you're a good cook. You're thoughtful and you're thinking about it. I do the same thing. But that's what I said. I said, why do we have to go through these heroics to uh -huh. make a squash taste like a fucking squash? It's crazy. <laughs> okay. But I said that, you know, a little too provocatively. He got very serious on me and he looked right in my face and said, the reason I've never created a butternut squash that tastes good is because no one's ever asked me to select for flavor. Mm. That was the moment I said that I felt like a curtain went down. It was like a before and after moment because mm. it it was so amazing that the criteria for selection of our food supply didn't include 
what the hell it tasted like. Yeah. And I'm like, well, who, crazy. who are breeders talking to? Well, of course, you learn they're talking to big business and they're uh-huh. talking to they're talking to seed companies that are chemical companies. I mean, that there is, there is the problem. Yeah. Seed companies today are in the hands of four companies. 65% of our seed. When I say seed, I don't want to be oblique. 65% of our food supply mm. worldwide, not America, worldwide yeah. is in the hands of four companies. Those four companies are not seed companies. They are chemical companies. Unbelievable. All seed companies now have been bought up by chemical companies. You're, so you have ChemChina. You're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> but, that, but, now but I'm trying to get it back actually to health. And that, that's why I, said I was going to try and tell that story to say something larger, which is the game is rigged. The game is rigged. Mm. And and right there, four companies, chemical companies, tell me what incentive a chemical company has to create a vibrant seed, organic seed, that can thrive in the field, defend its own pests, because squash do that very well, yeah. defend against disease, because squash do that very well, and produce a good tonnage, a good harvest per acre. They do that very well if you do the R&D on organic system, but if you're a chemical company, you own the seed company, what the hell do you want organic seed? You don't make any money on seeds. That's why all the seed companies lost, sold out. They sold to chemical companies because the money uh-huh. is in the intervention. Yeah. That's the problem with the medicine. The money is in the intervention. Yeah. Where is the research going? Intervention, because you get a drug. Mm. You get a drug, you get the money. Yeah. I mean, eat real organic vegetables grown in a dynamic, diverse environment with serious microbiology in the soil. That right there yeah. is over time, over a 10,000 year history, the clearest prescription for long-term health. Mm. Long-term degenerative disease, I don't need to tell you that, it's diets yeah. and diets have long-term possibilities. So mm. you can eat your way to a great preventative lifestyle yeah. and do it deliciously. But if you're a seed company, as I said, you're in the hands of the chemical company. Mm. The chemical companies, it is rigged game. Yeah. It's out there to make money. And it's out there for the intervention, and so is medicine. I'll tell you the end of my story, and I'm sorry to gas on for so long. The end of the story, I'm going to fast forward now 12 years, okay? Mm -hmm. I became quite good friends with that squash breeder, Michael Missouri. Mm -hmm. And we worked together on a a squash that blows people's minds. It's now called the Honey Nut. It was a trial number called 898. Uh selected. Um, I've seen pictures of this on Instagram, and it looks amazing. Right? And I want to tell you that today, it's about 14 years after our conversation in the kitchen, the honey nut squash, which was a trial number, which was an idea in that kitchen, became a trial number, became tested by us, and then we broadcast it out. Chefs started using it all over the country. Uh Today, it has grown coast to coast. Wow. From New York to Florida, Michigan to Texas, California to Oregon, and it is in Trader Joe's, and it's in Costco this year. I mean, you're you're literally redesigning how we eat. Well, the breeders are. What I'm doing is giving them some enabling power because that's what we started with is I'm drawn to a sector of the food Mm. system that's critical, absolutely critical, that nobody understands. The reason I can say confidently nobody understands it is because, first of all, you start asking people about seed. They're just like, you know, they think GMO crops or whatever. And the second thing is no one understands that four chemical companies control our food supply. That's scary. Yeah. yeah, that's scary. So, and, and people don't understand that our food is as genetically engineered as the pharmaceutical drugs exactly. that we, that we take. Exactly, like exactly. food is engineered. 
Yeah. To be honest with you, I'm open to the idea of engineering food because uh-huh. breeding and selection is engineering. You mm-hmm. are making choices and in that sense the word gets a little fuzzy. Yeah. What I don't like is the criteria for that engineering. Mm. Yeah. What's the criteria? Yeah. Is it that you produce a weak plant that mm. requires a chemical cocktail of intervention? Mm. Because if that's what you're doing, then that's a really yeah. abusive use of technology. Yeah. You know, but the reason we don't have organic, people always say like organic vegetables is so expensive. It's for the elites. It's a, you know, it's like, no, I mean, it's that way because we've allowed it to be that way. Because again, who invests in organic seed? I can tell you that nobody does. Mm. I I am, but I'm nothing. I mean, I was on the stage with the Monsanto vice president. That guy was such a jerk. Wow. And he was, he was really- <laughs> David was, versus Goliath. <laughs> it was, man. I was. I, I, not, I wasn't even David. I'm like a flint on this guy's lapel. But he, he said, you know, we spend a million dollars a day on corn research. Oh, my God. A million a day. You know how much organic corn research is spent in this country? It's almost nothing. So then when people say, well, how come organic you know, is so expensive? Well, it's because they've got one hand tied behind their back, those seeds. Nobody's investing in, yeah. in that's why I say technology and investment is a good thing if it's for the right purpose. Yeah. That guy, the squash breeder, Michael Mazurk from Cornell, he has this great line. He always says, it's not that organic has a yield gap with conventional food. Mm-hmm. It's that we have an R&D gap mm-hmm. and nobody understands. Mm-hmm. When you go into Whole Foods, where do you live? I live in right outside Philadelphia. Oh, you so said okay. I go to I go, go to Whole Foods. Foods yeah. a yeah, lot. When you yeah. go into Whole Foods and you purchase an organic vegetable, I almost guarantee you that that vegetable, that organic carrot or strawberry, was grown from conventional seed. Wow. Which means that when they developed the seed, they were coating it in chemicals, yeah. the seed itself, and the environment around it was grown up. It's, and then... An organic farmer is allowed by the USDA to grow that chemically treated seed Mm. in their organic field if there's no equivalent organic seed, of which there's almost never equivalent organic seed. So that farmer now has to use that seed, has to. And that farmer gets, is like raising a sick child. It's Mm. like you have to care for it in this way that's like, it's so crazy because that child, that seed child was raised with chemicals Mm. and it doesn't add up to creating a vibrant organic food economy. Mm-hmm. It just creates an expensive food chain. Yeah. So, you know, that's why I started all of this. I yeah. was like, there are a lot of breeders out there who don't want to be owned by chemical companies. Most of them. So you sound like more of a scientist than a chef when I'm talking I, you know, to I you. Failed <laughs> seven, I failed seventh grade biology. I've gotten so <laughs> interested in the science behind it. At your farm, Blue Hill Farm, you have an R&D lab, right? At Blue Hill, at Stone Barns, yeah, Stone which Barns, is yeah. which is yeah, which I have Blue Hill Farm is a family farm. That's a dairy, which okay. we haven't even talked about dairy. But uh, uh, the Blue Hill at Stone Barns is a restaurant and working two hundred acre working farm, of which we spend half of our weeks. So we're only open three days a week for dinner. I don't know, uh, if you know three days yeah. a week, and then the other days we are doing R and D on the kind of stuff that we're yeah. talking about to give farmers and breeders a voice. Yeah. Because uh, I, yeah. I, I follow you on Instagram. I'm seeing what you produce. I'm like, my mind is blown. I'm like, I've never Thanks, seen man. these types of fruits and vegetables before. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, crazy. It's They're a all out back. there. They're all out there. You know. And so I created a company sort of like Ellis Island. It's like, give me the ones that have been... The amount of rejection from these chemical companies because it doesn't yield enough or because 
it doesn't fit into a box yeah or because the yellow on a yellow pepper isn't yellow enough for the consumer and all this shit mm. it's it's crazy cakes and i want the misshapen and the yeah. you know the ignored <laughs> you know come to me that's what i so that's what i've been doing every time i sit with a breeder i look first thing i say is what are you throwing away mm. the other night when you woke up in the middle of the night and you were thinking about a variety that you weren't pursuing what was it that's what i want mm. and that's what chefs want Mm. the shrunken butternut squash yeah you know who nobody when we took that first prototype of the shrunken butternut squash that i said is grown coast to coast now and is in costco we brought that to walmart executive sorry a, a buyer a walmart buyer uh-huh. walmart buyer said to the breeding group said that'll never work that'll never work. no one's ever gonna pay enough money for half a size squash mm. by the way the beta carotene mm-hmm. alone just on that the nutrient is it's like I've forgotten the number versus butternut squash, but the beta carotene is three times wow. per spoonful than regular butternut squash. Because butternut squash is water. It's mm-hmm. 80% water. So actually, kind of all the breeder did was force out the water and made a smaller squash. So, you know, our whole food system is based on weight. Mm. And all the breeding goes towards weight. Mm. Yield, weight, shelf what? life. Because you could char- charge more? Yeah, because you get paid through weight. Wow. Farmer gets paid by weight. Distributor gets paid by weight. Whole Foods gets paid by weight. Everybody gets to weight. And so water is where everything in breeding went. That's why I wanted to go in another direction. Mm. What if you squeeze water out of it? I mean, that's what chefs, if you want to distill what chefs do that's good, that's incredible, is mm. we get water out of the way. That's what cooking, a lot of cooking is. Mm. Breaking down cell structure, getting water out of the way. So you mm. intensify flavors. It's Actually, that's kind of all we do. So what I'm suggesting is that we should start the recipe a lot earlier. Yeah. Huh. Not at the chopping board, not at the stove, and not at the farm. It's not mm. just about being, you know, having allegiance to your local farmers. Talking because, about going way upstream. Yeah, man. It's like by the time the farmers got it, cake's already been baked. Mm. You know, you got to start with seed. And then, then you have a shot with, yeah. it, with a great farmer. If you don't have a good farmer, or you have a terrible farmer, chemical farmer, and you have great seed, great genetics like that squash, well, it won't be expressed. So it's not like a mm. miracle. You know, you need the farming. But on the opposite, if you've got the best farmer you know of yeah. doing the most diversity and getting the most biologically diverse community intact in his or her soil, and he or she does not have the genetics, it will not be expressed. Mm. So that to me, it's... There's an opportunity there that's really quite exciting. Last question I have for you, Dan. We've been talking a lot about health equity here at Aspen Ideas Festival. And, you know, health equity, we can't have it without food equity. And so this food system that you're talking about, isn't it pretty expensive? The person, the communities that are underserved, how can they afford to eat healthy? Yeah. Well, this is part of the problem with the investment where our infrastructure has gone over the last hundred years is to create cheap food that is not nutritious for us. And my contention is that if you are cooking yourself, Mm -hmm. you are not only cooking demonstrably more healthy food, Mm -hmm. because someone else cooks for you, it's not as healthy, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's also cheaper. But you have to devote the time. And then it gets into the question, well, now you are saddling people without economic means Mm-hmm. with time, which is similar to money. And that's not fair. And my answer to that, because I've been challenged on that a lot, uh-huh. is that I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. We we have over the last 20 years figured out, because our culture demands it, 
ways to like spend a lot of time doing a lot of things. The mm. internet, <laughs> cable TV, <laughs> our iPhones. I mean, if you and I growing up, we didn't have any of that no, stuff. No, no. Uh, and by the way, if I said to you, if we were sitting here in this interview and I said to you in 1990, uh, what's, we're in 2023. So why don't we just take 1993? Uh-huh. And I said to you, hey, you know what? In 2024, I'm going to tell you the craziest thing. There's this thing called an iPhone that all of a sudden, the average, that there's going to be a 90% penetration with Americans spending disposable income, extra disposable income of $150 uh-huh. a month. You think I was crazy. Yeah. And then I'd say, oh, hold on, hold on. There's this thing called cable TV. That's going to have 80% penetration in 2024. That's going to cost another $100. You'd throw up your hands. You'd be like, yeah. who is this guy on my podcast? <laughs> okay. But we figured out a way to afford that because the culture demanded that was something that was essential. Why don't we do that with food? Mm. And we should, and we can. And that is what's happening in the millennial and Gen Zer. Mm. I see that up close every day with my staff. Yeah. And I see it out when I'm talking on the road. It is impressive. And it's, it's to me, the cultural shift is the way to go yeah. because you can't wag your finger. And that's, that's why the, the medical perspective, health perspective, yeah. I think has to come from a different angle, mm, has to come from pleasure yeah. principle. Pleasure, A to Z. I, I, I 100% okay. agree with you. I mean, th- that's why I work out too. It's like- Yeah, I you look pretty I, fit, man. What's well, yours? Because I'm a, I'm a surfer and that's my pleasure. Oh, you're a surfer. So Philly? Like, I, surfer I, Philly. I, I surf in Jersey, but I work out in order to get that pleasure to surf nice. better. Have and you I'll... read this guy's book, Longevity? No. Do you I know don't. what I'm talking about? Yes, yeah. <sighs> I'm obsessed. Yeah. I was up the other night till four in the morning. Obsessed. <laughs> obsessed. I'm like, I'm doing it all wrong. This guy, he's very, very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. You don't buy it. I totally buy it. I want to be sensitive to your time because oh, you shit. just got off a flight. You need, uh, I need I to get, get you a, a cup coffee. of coffee. Come on, let's go get a cup of coffee. We can't continue let's... it on a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. No, that doesn't Thanks, work. Thanks, Dan. I, I really well. appreciate what you're doing about designing the future of food and Thank your you. just optimistic look for it. Yeah, yeah I mean... I'm actually very cynical, but I felt like being optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dan is one of the most creative people I've ever met. I was so inspired by our conversation. You could follow Dan on Instagram at Chef Dan Barber or on Twitter at Dan Barber. I'm signing out for a while. Hope to be back in the future. But in the meantime, please reach out to me. Design Lab is produced by the amazing Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando Rose. Emmanuel Houston created our theme music, and Eden Liu created our cover design.